Tony Gainsford, I'm the President of the Cambridge Historical Society. And um, we decided um, that we want to organise some meetings like this and um, get in touch with our members and the, and the public um, and um, yeah, get a bit more contact with uh, the community. Uh, so Grant here has offered to arrange an evening like this and uh, he's done all the hard work for tonight. He's um, organised uh, guest speakers and he'll introduce them uh, before they, um, they, have, uh, they take the stage themselves. But uh, just welcome to tonight. Um, the Cambridge Historical Society is an active society. I know a number of you are members, some may not be. No. We've got some membership forms over here if you'd like to join. Um, it's only $15 for a single or a, a family membership, same price. And, um, and I think you'll get good value out of it. We, we try to keep um, an eye on heritage within the district. We're very active in some areas, especially with our local museum. We own the collection at the museum, so we own all the artefacts and all the research material in the museum, and we have a very active part in running it. John's asked me to show you a brochure. So we do this sort of thing. We produce a newsletter every two months that we send out to all our members, and in there there's a bunch of interesting articles about Cambridge and districts and... Um, and people who have lived in the area. Uh, so we've got all sorts of things going. We have a membership of around 175, 80, 180 members at the moment, so it's not a small group, it's quite a large yeah. group, and we're looking to grow that as much as we can. <coughs> so hopefully tonight's the first of many. We're going to try and organise these every couple of months and make them open to members and the public. A few technical issues here first, just to get them set up. Something's happening up there. No, he was trying to play a video, I think. Or we could hear some sound. Could you hear some Yeah, it was very... Software. I could hear some sound here, there was the commentator talking then, so obviously it was coming to the right. Yep. We've got the guru now, here we've got Vicky. Yeah, yeah. Knows exactly what goes on. Perhaps too at the same time I could say thank you to Vicky, who's the president of our bridge club, to which this building belongs, and they've very kindly allowed us to use it twice tonight. So thank you, Vicky. Appreciate it. Switch on. Switch load to establish a protective switch. Ah, ah. So, Where's the go button? Yeah. Just talk about making noises. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's just turned it on. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Just take a bit of a walk. Yeah, yeah. Well,
So thank you, folks. The uh, two um, tonight we get, we've got two uh, the early guest speakers. I just getting their heads together. Coming along here tonight, so they're just having a quick chat. They're going to tell us about uh, being successful in a, in a ballot to go to Gallipoli for the hundredth anniversary. Two uh, Cambridge uh, local people, and then we'll have um, Richard Stowers, who's going to talk about Chantilly. But initially, uh, we'll just hear a little bit about our two of our local people who went to Gallipoli. So, if I could introduce. Uh, Sue Milner, who I think most of you will know, and um, Michael, <laughs> Michael Butler. Uh, Michael's uh, a Cambridge uh, man as well. So I'll let uh, them tell you a little bit about themselves and how they got to go to the 100th anniversary of Chunk Beer. So please. Thanks for asking. Hey, I do, just thought we'd start with uh, some of the words of the guys that were actually there, right? So we've got... Um, for four or five minutes, we've got a, a couple of veterans talking about their experiences. So it's a bit of a listening experience to start with, and then we'll, we'll share how it was for us, and then we'll let the expert talk about um, his understanding and research around it. How's that sound? All right, so let's have a little listen to these guys. We're not going to be able to see it directly on here just yet, uh, but if you listen, I think you know, it's more about what they say than, than necessarily what they look like, right? Before the dead and wounded were so kind 
in the church that we were standing. We were taking it in all directions. But uh, they, they, were, they were getting pretty well ahead too. But uh, I would have said it was a 50 50 business. But in fact, then I was going to to them. And uh, the only thing to do is to get out as soon as you can, which we did do. I was assisted down by a sniper who did his very best to get me while I was hopping on trying to get into the head of a little gully nearby. That would be about two hours after I was wounded. But I got a discovery of about 300 wounded laying in a valley as it like was. We laid in that sun about 130 degrees all day <coughs> without a drink of water. How can I do something for them? But it is difficult to continue. Nobody really could do There is, um, well, there is, I know the stories that uh, uh, we shot something. I don't know whether that really happened. Personally, I never had to face it. And yet, no doubt it would have been a mercy and a blessing to some people to the future. Or their own
There was also an important peace conference for government leaders at Chinakali on the 23rd and 24th of April, including the Turkish President, the Prime Ministers of Australia and New Zealand, and the Prince of Wales. And so in the Dardanelles there were um, Navy ships of Australia, New Zealand, France, Turkey and Britain, and they were patrolling the Dardanelles and Anzac Coast. So we get to the day itself, so I'm just going to do this. So there's 10,500 of us, mostly Aussies, 2,500 Kiwis, and a few hangers on like VIPs. We've got the commemorative t-shirts, the replicas of medals given to our grandfathers, the hats supplied by the government, and our precious passes. And we're all at a little bay on the Aegean coast of Turkey, at a place known as Anzac Cove since 1915 in the Great <coughs> It's cold and dark, and most of us have been there for hours, probably at least eight. The latest arrivals come in around 2 a.m. And there's hardly anywhere to sit, and it's, again, it's dark and very cold. However, there are big lights and huge screens. We've heard the Defence Force bands and their singers. We've listened to a wonderful speech from a young girl from Potoki who won the RSA Cyril, Cyril Bassett VC speech competition. It's been entertainment all night, though many of us have tried to get some sleep. And just before the dawn service is to begin, we watch an Australian film, The Telegram Man. This is such an emotional film that weeks later, the Gallipoli 2015 Facebook pages are still talking about it. We all fall silent when the cliffs behind us are lit up. They're just so steep. And finally, at five o'clock, we hear the didgeridoo. And the big screen lists the names of some Anzacs, of the Anzacs who died there. There's a silence, and we hear the kaikaranga clearing the path for our dawn service. We can hear the sea, and then the dawn service begins. It includes the words of Canal Ataturk to the mothers, always an emotional moment. And there are the hymns, there is the hymn, God of Our Fathers, which the Anzacs would have sung here in 1915. There is the ode, the prayers, the last post, the silence, followed by the anthems of Turkey, Australia and New Zealand. <coughs> As the sky lightens, we see the Allied warships guarding the bay. Now it is time to leave this place, past the Anzac Coast Cemetery, which we saw two days earlier. So beautiful and so sad. So many hand-knitted copies have been made here over the past few days. The Aussies go to Lone Pine. Theirs is a shorter walk than the Kiwi walk to Chanak Bear, and not as steep. The Chanak Bear service does not start till after lunchtime. We're grateful for all the food we bought at a supermarket in Chinakale the day before. We pass armed Turkish soldiers both sides of the road every 100 metres. We also spot the mounted soldiers who were patrolling the cliffs overnight. The Kiwis have a long wait for the service, as thousands of Turkish scouts are paying their respects at the Ataturk Memorial, which is part of the Chanak Bear site. Close by, the Turkish 57th Battalion service is also taking place. However, the New Zealand Defence Force have put up marquees and provided toilets and a first aid post, so we are sheltered as we wait, which is still cold.
Finally, we are allowed to our seats at the Chanuk Bear site. With much excitement, this is our New Zealand service. The youth ambassadors sing for us. They're great. They have been helping the New Zealand Defence Force all week. Then the official party arrives. And then it's the Chuck and Harry show. Chuck is affable. Harry chats up young blondes. And we see all this on strategically placed big screens. The Irish president's wife has the best hat, closely followed by a Kiwi who's married to some Aussie bloke by the name of Abbott. Again, we have a karanga. We have hymns in Māori and Pākehā. Tears are shed as we listen to Colonel Malone's last letter to his wife. The Defence Force bands play Abide With Me, A Pāori Rā, which is one of the most beautiful Tāngi songs, and that was used to welcome the men of the Pioneer Battalion back to Pingara on the East Coast. Hine e hine, the lullaby. And then we have the Turkish New Zealand anthems, then now is the hour. This has been a lovely service. We have remembered our soldiers, those who died in this place, and those who came home, and all those other soldiers on all sides. It's been a privilege to be here, to see this place that has a legendary status for New Zealanders, to try to understand why the British thought they could control the Dardanelles, and to see why they couldn't. It's a beautiful place, and we are fortunate that the Turks have been just so generous to us there in their country. That's So I'm not as well organised as uh, Sue or Richard, I'm sure, all right? Uh, I work for Fonterra, so you can appreciate things are a little bit awkward at the moment with different things. And so I was preoccupied with that until about half past six this evening. So I wasn't quite as organised, but I did want to uh, share with you a couple of thoughts. I've got a little bit of history um, connecting uh, my family to Gallipoli. I didn't realise this until about six months before I was due to go. I had put my name in um, the ballot to try and get over to uh, over to Gallipoli. I thought there was a bit of a deal. I've um, I spent 11 and a half years in the military, so I've got a bit of connection in with that. I'm also a very passionate uh, military historian in terms of figure paintings. I've got a couple of figures I'll show down the back there in terms of what I do in my spare time. Uh, I was aware they had a couple of uncles that had spent some time in the First World War. I didn't know the details about them. Uh, but I had, uh, I was familiar with a, a photo of them sitting on camels, and so I was pretty keen to sort of find out what the story was. What I was fortunate enough to do is, uh, before I went, I did a little bit of research, as you do, and I was able to come across their uh, records. And I found that, um, I found some surprising stuff, because I realised they'd gone a little bit later in the piece. They'd actually both belonged to the Wellington Mounted Rifles initially. They both came from the wire wrapper. Uh, and 
in one case, it would appear that young uh, Gunnar Francis, as he's called there, uh, was one of the troopers. Watt was his name, or Walter, known as Watt to the family. He was actually, uh, he went on shore in November, uh, according to his military records. We didn't know that at the time. Um, but it was interesting to find in his records that he'd been there. Uh, his brother, his older brother, Frank, was actually, um, he was crook. So they'd gone over in, um, in late in 1915 as reinforcements for the New Zealand for the New Zealand Regiment, particularly the Wellingtons, who'd been on Chanuk Bear. They were the ones that you know, Colonel Malone was responsible for, and they were reinforcements for that unit. They both turned up at Lemnos, and they were supposed to go on shore with the reinforcements. But unfortunately, uh, Frank got crook, and he ended up going to Malta, which is really interesting, because when I was over there, I, I intended to visit Malta, and the sense that Malta is an important part of the, the Gallipoli story. You know, it's where the Maori Battalion went, or the Maori pioneers went, to do their service before they got sent on shore uh, at Gallipoli. And a lot of the wounded or the sick from Gallipoli, Lemnos, went to Malta for recovery. So uh, what went on shore, he was there at the last couple of months, so you know, Richard probably tells us it was a quieter time post uh, Chanuk Bear. Wasn't so much happening. It was a pretty cold winter though, I'm told. Uh, and then they, uh, they went with the rest of the New Zealand unit. For some reason, they left the mounted rifles instead of going to Palestine um, in the sun and riding horses, which they, I, I suggest they probably wanted to do. Uh, they did, both decided to um, change corps and went to France. One joined the uh, Wellington Infantry, and the other one went to the artillery. Uh, Watt picked up a, a um, leg wound. He came home. That's why my father remembers him, because he always had a walking stick. And, not much happened, um, not much for him in terms of family life and that sort of thing. Very quiet guy. Uh, Fred went on to on to the Western Front, spent a little while there, and on the 31st of uh, July 1917, he was part of a bit of a, a deal, Passchendaele, on day one of that, and was involved in uh, the first battle for that kicked off uh, Passchendaele, or the 30th battle, and uh, was killed uh, at that battle. So it was, that was a, a good context for me to get a sort of sense of who I was going for and to try and remember as part of that process. <coughs> I've got a series of photos, I'm not going to go through all of them. Uh, there's a couple, that, that first Sphinx picture for me, I was, we got on late into, uh, onto the peninsula and I was really quite grateful for that. I was going over with my son, it's the, the most time I've ever spent with my 24 year old son, uh, the month that we spent in Europe. Uh, it was really cool to be able to go in. We got there about 11.30 at night, so it was, a, it was about a five hour trip to get from just over the, over the water to uh, Gallipoli, because it was a little bit of a roundabout journey. We were staying at Kanakli and, and the bus we were in with a group of Australians had to go right up the peninsula, come over at the, the official Gallipoli uh, location and then come back down to it. So by the time we got on, everything was dark and the Sphinx being lit up in that very first photo that I had uh, behind Sue was the most, you know, was, was incredibly moving for me, actually seeing that, that sort of just being lit up, it was a, uh, was a very special moment. And then as the dawn started to break, I think Sue might have mentioned, you know, that we had the water, the lapping on the beaches being amplified. And there was an amazing scene out to sea where the, the ships started a, a bit of a convoy coming through, which is quite incredible. 
And in addition to that, there was uh, the, this young group, and this particular young guy who's looking at me was quite amazing. You know, the Turks are, are really are quite incredible to think, you know, we went over there, made a mess of the place, uh, and then left. And then for the, for the next, it seems like almost 100 years, we've been going back there. And certainly, I suppose, it's really been in the last 15 to 20 odd years that we've actually been going back there. But the fact that they welcome us back is really important. Having learned a little bit more about it, it's quite symbolic that we're there with the Australians and there's no like official British contingent or, or memory, memory service, memorial service. And in part because that's, there's a belief that we're all part of a victims of this whole sort of exercise. Uh, so I thought it was, pretty, you know, it was pretty special to see uh, a fellow young soldier there and part of that, and he was quite nervous, it was quite obvious as part of that, and he would have been the same age as, the, as um, our young ancestors coming through. There were a lot of Australians, right? So this is in the... <laughs> yeah, well, there were a lot of Australians, I suppose. And it was, I don't know if you realise, and I didn't quite pick up the start of the series, but it was balanced out, right? So there was a balance, it was, you know, essentially the the number of casualties, I think, was the sort of the way they worked out how many people were allowed to go. So, you know, we had a couple of thousand killed, all right. Um, Richard will certainly tell, give us the, the detail on that. But we had a lot of young guys killed, and so we had about 2,000 go. And they had around 8,000, so they had about 8,000. It, it seems a sad way of, yeah. of, of allocating things, but I don't know. It's, it's a strange thing, you know really is quite strange when you think about it, but uh, I don't know, it's a numbers game and we were fortunate enough to be selected and, and to go and to be part of that process. So this is that, uh, and you can't see much here, you can obviously look up later, but this was a particularly powerful moment because I, you know, we always think of Gallipoli as a land battle, it was all about our guys on the, on the beach. But in actual fact, it was as much about the Navy, and there's a considerable part of that whole campaign was about the Navy. And how many of you actually been to Gallipoli? Hands? Not many of us. <laughs> All right. Darn. I was hoping to be a few more. It's an incredibly small place, and it's a long way away from Istanbul, right? It's a very long way. Was it 400 miles or something? It's a, it's a very long way. I only picked it up on. Uh, Shadbox play, we went to see it on the weekend on that anniversary over Rotorua Grant Um But it's a long way and that, that whole logic of what these guys were trying to achieve was just, just you just don't appreciate it until you're there. And the, the importance of the ships being there, so there's ships from all of the navies and way beyond them, I don't know if anyone was looking at going on a cruise, but you know, these the ships were in about uh, four to five miles I suppose, you know, they, they're quite small with their battleships. You know, 15 to 20 miles out with the cruise ships, right? And what was really interesting is we walked off to go up the hills, this sort of like flotilla of cruise ships came in and it was sort of, it wasn't quite the same thing. But, <laughs> but there was, there was um, the young people's training ships, the spirit ships, There were around 10,000 of us, 10,500 of us there, uh, visiting the place. You know, and the, uh, the Turks put in, I think, 2,500 police and soldiers. And they were serious, right? So this is, uh, I don't know, 
some of you might know a little bit about um, about weapons and soldiers and the like, but that, that young man has uh, got a light machine gun there, which is a serious piece of equipment, all right? And seeing these guys and snipers, you know, every uh, around 50 odd metres on the path that we walked, and, and literally everywhere you were there were patrols, it was, in a way it was reassuring, but it was also a little bit more obvious than we're used to. Now I had the good fortune to uh, travel to Greece and Italy and over to Cairo uh, and trust me the, the, the armed police and, and soldiers in those areas weren't quite as... Um, these guys looked like they knew what they were doing. Those other places they were a little bit more daunting in terms of what they didn't know what they were doing, if you know what I mean. And they, you know, these guys, this guy stand into attention for us as we go past, you know, and there's just a, a, a trail of Australians and New Zealanders walking up a little road, artillery road, to go up uh, to Lone Pine, where we veered off and just... Is this working for you? Is this helpful? Okay. What time, what time you finish? Okay. <laughs> yeah, we could literally go on for hours. This is that, uh, that sense, so there's... I think being there on Anzac Day was important. The most significant for me was at night in the early morning and a, and a bit of the Chanuk Bear stuff. Getting the Chanuk Bear, that's an, an enormous walk. There's no two ways about it. You can see why it takes four months for the guys to get there because it was hard enough to do in the, uh, in the daylight with nothing happening. It was a pretty long slog. There's no two ways about it. I lost my son along the way, so I had to go back halfway to find him. Uh, but there was a people were strewing out all along that way. But what was really helpful for me to get a genuine sense of the place was to actually go back a couple of days later. You know, I had a chance to visit uh, Hill 60, which had a profound impact on me in terms of the the way the place felt. And then I also went down to uh, Cape Palace, where the um, Turkish memorial is, and that's an incredible uh, monument. So I'm, I couldn't say exactly how tall, but you know, think a hundred. 100 feet tall or, or more, okay, seriously tall, um, and there's a, there's a, it's, it's a, it's a large arrangement, I've got a picture, picture there, but suffice to say, it's, it's solid stone and there's a huge Turkish flag in the bottom of it, and then the, the cemeteries around there are the most impressive cemeteries I've ever seen, and the monuments there are really quite incredible in terms of the effort, and there have been a lot of, uh, a lot of remembrance services on the days leading up to and on the days that, that followed our event. So the Turkish take this, this event very seriously. Those young guys, they were reenacting at the at the Turkish Memorial, which is just below Chanak Bear. Um, and reckon um, uh, a little bit of reenactment of uh, Ataturk, who was apparently on a horse giving commands as part of that. So they had a small mounted unit. I'm sure Richard tell you a lot more about this, and, and I would have loved to have spent a lot more time digging around in these things. This is just a trench line. This is, a, you know, 100 years on for me, that's a big deal, right? You know, I spent a few years down Wairu, and, and trust me, the, the trench system didn't look much more complicated. But to think that's 100 years on, and that's essentially, you know, so Leonard Thornton was digging around in these things back in the 80s uh, when he went over there, and those, that clip that you heard when he's, um, he and Chris Pugsley, Pugsley were talking to... Um, talking to those veterans, you know, they were digging around in this sort of stuff. And so 
Gallipoli is not just a piece of dirt or a scenic park. It's actually a, it's actually a, uh, the whole place is sacred ground. It's essentially a, a, a cemetery area, right? So they've tried to. They seem to have left the place in essentially the way it is. There's a little bit of touristy stuff on there, but um, not as much as you'd think it could be. And then he said that. <laughs> There's no doubt the Turks are very nationalistic and very proud um, of their people. And the place was covered in flags. I don't know if it's typically like that. Spent a few days in Istanbul. There were, there were a lot of um, red flags there. Coming into uh, Chinakli, it's full of red flags. And then this is their main monument, which is, as I said, just below, uh, main uh, cemetery just below Chanak Bear. And you, I think you said the unit. What was the 57 bridge? 57th Battalion. And these guys literally were across the road from the New Zealanders and Australians. Yeah, there's a road there now which is handy, but in those days it was literally, you know, it's essentially from Metatonia. It's that far away. My son at the beach, plenty of poppies at the top of Chanak Bear. And that's probably all I'm going to say for now. Up in fact, Troy's over. Uh, who's seen Morris Shedbolt's play? You should see it. Read that book. You know, it's an amazing dialogue in it. And one of the guys spends a whole heap of time. The young officer in that. There's a bit of a bit of a take on it. You know, he's thinking about the Greeks and what happened with Homer's Odyssey because Troy's just like just directly across the water in terms of that. So I didn't realise it was so close. And there's a, there's I don't know, not necessarily parallels, but it's a very interesting piece of piece of dirt. I think. Yeah, I certainly have a listen to it. It really is quite impressive. Right, that's all from me. We can take some questions later on if you want to. I only have a little bit of a display for you to look at and talk about later on if you'd like. Okay. Thanks, Graham. Yes. You want the lights on, Richard? So can I introduce Richard Stowers? Richard's uh, originally from Cambridge, and uh, I've been referring to him as... He's a Cambridge boy, is our Richard, and um, he said, just a minute, I'm not a boy anymore, <laughs> I'm 60. <laughs> Richard, welcome. Yes, Richard's uh, written quite a number of books, and uh, the first book of Richard that I got hold of was the, the about the Waikato Regiment, the history of Waikato, and um, he's actually been involved in a lot of history relating to Gallipoli. Thanks for coming along, Richard. Thanks, Grant. Yeah, Thank you. Good evening. Well, I hope I, I fit the bill, so. <laughs> yeah. um, I'm going back to some basics here. You, you probably guessed from my crude artwork. That's, that's the Gallipoli Peninsula. This is Cape Halley's down here in the corner. I arrived at two hours. That's where the bricks landed, and a, a town, there's a little town, oh, it's about here, 
it's called Mados, but we, we call it now Essiabat, is that right? Yeah, Essiabat. And Chinakli, that's the big city now, is over here. And out of interest, Troy's about here. Um, in the old days, the water had still silted up and earthquakes have lifted up as well. So it was actually on the on the um, Dardanelles, but and now it's inland, <coughs> so it's a bit strange. But that's where Troy is. So, and Chunuk Beer, well, I'm, I'm guessing here, I would say that's, that's where Anzac Cove is. There. And Chunuk Beer would be about there somewhere. Chunuk Beer. So, and there's another little town called Carithia. There's a very good museum there. So, Ian Hamilton. He was the British general involved. He was put in charge of the Dardanelles campaign. Not so much the Gallipoli campaign, but the Dardanelles campaign. He was a veteran general from, um, from the South African War. Now, he was more suited to battles on horses. He wasn't a land general at all. And they didn't know the British... A war cabinet didn't know who to put in charge. Kitchener said Hamilton, so they virtually brought Hamilton out of retirement to be the commanding officer. And he did sweet nothing. He had no ideas. I blame him. His, his man they sent out to New Zealand, a guy called Godley, he was just as bad. So I'm very critical of his general, his British officers, by the way. Um, his, Ian Hamilton's idea was they'd had ships coming in here, British warships coming in, right? They're coming up because Istanbul or Constantinople would be over there somewhere, okay? And they tried for four months or something like that to try and penetrate the, the narrows, this, the narrows just this little bit here. One young officer on a little mine layer, he went out one night and he laid a, a series of mines just down here like this, if you can see those little dots. No rhyme or reason, he just did it. And when the British ships came in and they were bombarding, Turks had um, huge uh, gun batteries along here and along here. They even had some hidden ones uh, pulled by horses like mobile um, batteries they had them in, and they'd lob shells across and they were just about as dangerous as the big guns. So when they suddenly realised there were some mines laid up here, they could see them because they had little mine layers around the big battleships, the battleships turned like this to come out because they went straight into the mines and the lost, I can't remember the name, but the Mayat, Mayat it was an old French battleship, and in about a couple of minutes, they lost about 600 men or something. Went straight out, just, just went like that, and straight down. And, and they lost also a couple of British battleships who were crippled, and they, they got out, but they lost a lot of men. So <coughs> it was a disaster. The Turks knew, they knew the grand plan, they knew what was going on. They knew that the, the British government wanted to take 
Constantinople, basically to make contact with Russia, get the wheat out of Russia, and also be able to supply Russia with supplies, um, armaments and what have you, to continue the war against Germany from, from the rear. But everybody, under, all the British government underestimated Turks, they had no idea at all. So Chunuk Bey is here, they landed there, the idea, Ian Hamilton's idea was that if the Anzacs were to go straight across and take Maidos, Esiabat, and then come take the coast down here, and then at the same time the Brits landed and the French landed down here, and they will all come up. And it was all going to happen in one day. We had Johnston, one of our generals, he was in charge of our infantry. He didn't even come ashore on the first day. He stayed on the ship. Because he thought it would be all over by lunchtime. And he could just go in and, uh, and mop up. Because it wasn't to be. So that was Ian Hamilton's glorious plan. Go across, hold the west shore of the Dardanelles of Narrows, meet up with the British, and then slowly take the gun emplacements in this area, and then the warships could carry on through. Well, it didn't work. As you know, it became a stalemate in um, Gallipoli on the 25th of April, right through to the 6th of August, which was the start of the August offensive. In July, Ian Hamilton decided he got permission from England and he got reinforcements to have another push at it to try and take Constantinople. And guess what his plan was? It was exactly the same plan that he had on the 25th of April. So it was totally doomed to, to failure right from the start. So if I go to map number two, so, I know, there's, can you see down there? That's Anzac Cove, Chunuk Bear, Hill about that, sh that shape and size, and then you had uh, one called Rhododendron Spur, and then you had a system, there were about three gullies. So there, there was a gully there, the Turks called it a dare, D E R E. There was a gully there, that was Sasley uh, Beat there, that one was called uh, Chalik there. And this one was called Argyle there. And for the first four months of the campaign, our boundary, or yeah, at the front line, was roughly was, was roughly about that. With the New Zealanders basically in this area, and the Australians basically in this area here. Although up here on a place called Russell's Top which is the big area you can see up behind the Sphinx in that photo you saw in the, in the, with the spotlights on it. That's up on the first bit of high land there. And it, then it had a small area, a small little piece called the Neck. Now you all know what the Neck was. The Neck was where the Australians got pounded on the morning of the 7th. And they lost about 400 men and about... 10 minutes. You all saw the movie? 
Gallipoli, Mel Gibson. Yeah, well, that was the action at the net. Now, on the 6th, on the night of the 6th, this glorious plan was going to happen again. But I'll get a different card for this. The idea was that New Zealanders would, they'd all go, doesn't work very well. What happened to the blue one? I hear this. On the table, there's a box on the table, too. That the New Zealanders would move out from number two outpost, which is about here somewhere, which was a very end of the front line. They would take number three outpost, which they actually took um, a couple of months earlier and lost it because it was too, it was impossible to hold on to. That was the Orca Mounted Rifles. They took that, Waikato men, including James Watson. He was in the unit. Uh, um, from Mangatautri or Pukikura. They took that beautiful action, if you're, if you're talking military-wise, was a classic um, strategy. They had um, English come in here, they had English destroyers come in, and every night at 10 o'clock they'd lob shells at this Turkish outpost, and of course the Turks, it was quite a fortress. And then they'd go away, then they'd come back at 20 past, and they'd do it again. They'd fire a few more shots, and then they'd go away. So at 10 o'clock, of course, the Turks would vacate it, and they'd sit down in the back here, sort of thing. So the, news, the, the Waikato men, the Northern Mountain Rifles, came up in the night, just waited there. Sure enough, the boat came in, they fired, and just when the, when the shots finished, and the Turks are going to come back in, they rushed in. And they took the place with some heavy fighting, and uh, but the casualties in the scheme of things weren't extremely high, but it was a tactically a, a wonderful battle. And uh, that was, and then the Canterbury and Otago mounted rifles, they went onto this area here, another headland here, hill called uh, Bashop's Hill. They took that, and then uh, another group, Wellington mounted rifles. Probably your uncle, Michael. They took um, uh, Round Top, I think it was called. Tabletop, Tabletop, they took that. And they took all the strong points. And then in the meantime, the, the infantry, <coughs> the four regiments of New Zealand infantry, the Auckland, Wellington, Canterbury, and Otago, they all started marching up these gullies in the, in the dark. Didn't know what the territory was like, didn't know what they were coming up against. It was uncharted. And all of them climbed onto the Rhododendron Spur, which sloped up, getting higher and higher. And of course, Chunuk Bear was, was there. Now, the plan was that infantry went, were meant to go right up and onto Chunuk Bear first thing on the next morning, on the 7th of August. It couldn't happen. The plan was just too complicated. The ask was too much. They just couldn't get there. Um, a guy called Bishop, Lieutenant, he was like fourth in command of the Otago Infantry. He was the first one to get to a place called the Apex, which is about here somewhere. Apex, they called it, they gave it the name afterwards. 
And he wanted to carry on, but one of the commanding officers arrived and said, no, no, you can't carry on. You'll be, be too stretched and isolated and the Turks will you know, shoot you dead. So he had to stay, but he realised the opportunity was lost. And by the time enough soldiers arrived there, it was too late. Johnson, our wonderful general, in charge of the infantry, at 11 o'clock on the Saturday morning, which was the 6th, the 7th, sorry, he decided to send the Aucklanders, the Auckland infantry, to, to capture Chunuk there. And everybody said no. He didn't have machine guns ready or anything for defence or backup. And, and the poor Auckland infantry charged off, and I only got as far as about 100 metres, a place called the Pinnacle, and the, all them got cut down in between. And within about a minute, about 60 Aucklanders were, were shot dead in the little area there. So that was the first big cocker. The day before, just to try and distract the Turks, the Australians attacked um, Lone Pine. And that was their probably biggest action they had in, on, on Gallipoli. And they won eight, seven, seven Victoria Crosses in that one action. Am I wrong? Seven. Seven. Thank you. One of them was a Kiwi. Yes, shout. Yeah. Um, and they, it was distract the Turks and make them all come here so that there wouldn't be any up here. Okay, because this was the master plan. Lone Pine wasn't, it was Chanuk there. So everything was focused on taking these heights. But they didn't realise what happened. The, the Turks came from Perga Peninsula, like 10,000 men. And they came down and they stationed them in, in behind Chanuk there, as like reserves in there. So it, the opposite happened. Instead of making it easier for the Kiwis, it actually made it harder. That was the first thing. Now, the plan was, on, on the 7th, they would take Chunk there, not stay there, they were to turn and come back in behind this perimeter at the back, the northeast perimeter of the Anzac sector, okay? And then at the same time, there'd be a breakout from here, they'd meet, and then when they combined forces, or they go to Maidos, the village you see about on the on the um, Dardanelles. Same plan as what I told you about over there. But they couldn't attack it on the what the orphans had said, and you saw what happened to them. They got wiped out. So no one told the Australians that it wasn't going to happen until this, this um, the eighth, and they attacked it at the neck on the morning of the 7th, thinking that the, the New Zealanders were on the other side. They weren't. And you all know the story of the, that film, right? Where they, the ships came in, they pounded the Turkish positions in behind the neck, and at 7 minutes to 4.30 or something, the jump off time, the ships um, Cannons stopped. They meant to stop at exactly 4:30, but they stopped seven minutes early. And 
because there was this, this total confusion. The Australians didn't know whether to jump the parapets and go, or will there be some more shells coming in from the ships? No more shells came in from the ships. The Turks knew what was going to happen. They brought their machine guns out on top of the trenches, and they could, the Australians could see them positioning their guns, and four waves, sorry, four waves of Australians charged across the net, and they were just wiped out, just about two men. Um, yeah, uh, the first two waves got every man was knocked down, and then two more waves. Anyway, um, as for the Kiwis, Malone said, I won't take Charlie Bear on the 7th, you saw what happened to the Aucklanders, but he said, I'll take it on the morning of the 8th, un under, under darkness, and he did. He marched up, the Maori marched up behind him, but the Maori never got there. A lot of people don't know about that. They went somewhere else. Um, he got on. He got onto the um, onto the summit. Just before he got there, there was a softening up from the navy, shelling the position. They took over a trench where one machine gun was in it, and then once they took the heights, Malone made the decision not to go on, or not, because he knew it was too too dangerous to go anywhere else. So he, they dug in, and that's when it all started. That was in the morning of the eighth. So it was the Wellington Infantry. After they were meant to be reinforced by the Auckland Mounted Rifles, and they they had to come all the way from here because they stay, they stayed there overnight. So they started moving about three o'clock on the morning of the eighth. They had to go all the way up this rugged territory terrain. And when they got to here, because the Turks, the Turks all around here started firing onto the, the slopes in front of Chanak Bear and they couldn't they couldn't get onto the summit. It was dreadful. So a lot of the new, like Cambridge men, Auckland men and what have you, trying to reinforce the Wellingtons already on Chanak Bear, couldn't even get up. And there was a couple of little gullies that they could go up very slowly and they managed to get onto Chanak Bear reinforcing the Wellingtons about three o'clock in the afternoon of the eighth which was a Sunday. The Wellingtons, as you know, just about got wiped out because it was the Turks, once they realised that the summit was held, they just sent charge after charge after charge because they had all these men waiting there. I don't know how many men the Turks lost. The guy, that voice that you heard was said 50% each way, but I would say it's probably something like five to one the Turks lost five times as many as the um, New Zealanders. The Wellingtons <coughs> got off. They marched off, well, staggered off, uh, in the night of the 8th, before midnight. The Aucklanders were there, and the Otagos came up and replaced them, target infantry, and the Wellington Mounted Rifles. Your, your great-uncle, was that right? Um, he, would, he would have been on the, on the Monday, which was the 9th. So we held it for two days. So the order was the Wellington Infantry Battalion, Auckland Mounted Rifles, Otago Infantry, and, and, and Wellington Mounted Rifles. The four New Zealand regiments 
held the heights at different times. And it was the Targos and the Wellington Mounted Rifles who were the last ones to come off. Now, it, it was taken over by two British regiments who came up at night time, on the night of the night. And the next day, very casual about it, they put the Geneva big in. And the next morning, the Turks just overran them, about 10,000 Turks. And then about 5,000 of those Turks charged on the on the 10th, they came down like this, trying to take line after line, or something like about 25 lines, about 300 men in each or something like that. By that stage, the New Zealanders had about 10 machine guns at the apex here, and they shot, and every man um, was knocked over. And when they crawled back, the Turks that were wounded, they let them crawl back. But, um, about 5,000 Turks were became casualties in about half an hour. So it was a shocking thing, really. So really, that's the battle of Chanak Deer. I'll read you a couple of short passages here. Everyone, anybody heard of Bean, Charles Bean? He was a, a war correspondent for the Australians. First, Trooper Murdoch Finlayson, the Auckland Mounted Rifles, he wrote later on about Chanak Bear, just, just a couple of lines. He said, what hell we went through. Men piled dead all around me. Hands, legs, heads, bodies, equipment and rifles flying in the air. Slung there by high explosive shells. How men came out of it, God only knows. So you get an idea how terrible the conditions were. Charles Ben saw the Wellingtons arrive back at the apex, back at Johnson's headquarters, just behind the apex, when they came off Chunk there. He wrote, of the 760 Wellington Infantry Battalion who had captured the height that morning, there came only 70 unwounded or slightly wounded men. Throughout the day, not one had dreamed of leaving his post. Their uniforms were torn, their knees broken, they had no water since the morning, they could only talk in whispers. Their eyes were sunken, their knees trembled, some broke down and cried like children. And the fate of the Auckland Mounted Rifles was very similar. Of the nearly 288 Aucklanders that advanced on the summit, that's what Auckland Mounted Rifles, including the Waikato Mounted Rifles, only 22 remained. Corporal James Watson from Cambridge was one of those 22. He wrote, Practically all the Auckland Mounted Rifles were <coughs> wounded. The 4th Waikato Squadron had only 16 left out of 89. All the officers were killed. Over the two days of Chanak Bear, New Zealand suffered nearly 2,500 casualties, including 800 dead. Over the five days of the August Offensive, which went from the 6th to the 10th of August, 880 New Zealanders were killed and close to 2,500 wounded. By unit, Auckland Infantry, 100 dead. Wellington Infantry, 313. Canterbury Infantry, 93. Otago Infantry, 124. 
Auckland Motor Rifles 90, Wellington Motor Rifles 64, Canterbury Motor Rifles 31, Otago Motor Rifles 34, Murray Contingent 21, as, and there were 10 others, engineers and ambulance men. I just want to show you some. There's some bullets I picked up on. Because when you're walking around Philippi, you're not walking around like this, you're walking around. <laughs> and I actually picked up, uh, I had a bullet given to me by a Turkish farmer at Hill 60, and I had, I've got mounted this around my neck, which is a nice piece, but I haven't got it here tonight. But the, this one was, was picked up on Chanak there, scratching around. And it's still got the cordite in it, so it's obviously being a, a full bullet at some stage, and it's been broken. Now you all know they threw bombs, the troops threw bombs on Chunk there. Is it actually a bomb, cricket ball bomb? That was dug up on Glipton. They call it the cricket ball bomb for the obvious same. reasons. Yeah. Yeah. So, there's still got stuff in it. Won't go off, sure of that. But it had um, a little sort of a, a, bra a brass plate there with a hole and the fuse came out and the fuse was 19 seconds or something, some crazy long <coughs> time. Because the Turks be frightened, they throw them over. Because the New Zealanders suddenly realised if they were quick enough, they could throw them back. <laughs> and a lot of New Zealanders did that on Chanak there and a lot of them got killed um, doing that. I've also got a picked up on Glittery. You obviously know what it is. Water bottle. And a horseshoe, well rather, I think it's a mule shoe. An English fuse cap was picked up on Glittery. It's English. Uh, I don't know where it was picked up, but probably around the heights somewhere. What was that? Uh, an artillery, that's the cap, the fuse of an um, artillery shell. Probably, it's probably a, um, a howitzer round. And I've got here, if you're interested, I've got some medals. Of, I've talked about the man called Bishop. Now Bishop ended up being the commanding officer on Chanakbeer on the second day. He went on to Chanakbeer as a lieutenant with the Otago Infantry. He had three, I think, commanding officers before him. He'd been on Chanak Bear for only a couple of hours, or an hour or something, and he was suddenly was the commanding officer because all the other officers became casualties. He got wounded in the leg. He took a piece of shrapnel in the lower leg, but he carried on. And I've got his medals here, including the Military Cross, so Chanak Bear Military Cross. So only two military crosses were issued from New Zealanders on Chanak Bear. The Australians got seven Victoria Crosses. Jackson also got, I think Jackson was Stanley Jackson, I think he got one of those, all the Victoria Crosses in New Zealand. Well, the other one was Wood from the Auckland Motor Rifles. Yeah. 
So this metals are there. And also he had a um, would you believe had a, a nice effigy made of one. Colonel he became a lieutenant colonel in France. He was he's quite well known in military circles because he they did an attack and the Germans folded in front of the Otagos and he kept going. And he, he took an extra four hundred meters or something like that. And they sent radio back because um, they had a telephone line, sent a telephone call back saying, Yes, come on, we've taken you know and the commanding officer said command said, No, come back. You've gone too far. Oh. Don't you love it? Such wisdom. <coughs> Another man, Wellington Mount Rifles. A lovely little cigarette case, and he's engraved it with all the battles he went on into France afterwards. It's an MID. The, the, the turn, he, he was mentioned in dispatches on Chanak Bear for the New Zealanders for bravery on um, Chanak Bear, yeah. Now, you think I MID Chanak Bear? Well, Malone only got an MID. He got no more. I mean, he should have got a Victoria Cross, but you don't. As a rule, you don't get posthumous Victoria Crosses, even though they are some in history, and not for an action that was lost as well. So. Um, he should have got one for earlier actions, at, um, sure of DSO or something like that. For in the battle for landing, he did a, a lot of amazing work, and also at um, Quinn's post and Courtney's post. So he was an amazing man, and all he got was an MID. I'm talking about Malone. He actually got two MIDs. What's an MID? Mentioned in the dispatches. Sorry, sorry. And I've got here. A trio of medals to a guy on the Auckland Mount Rifles called Palmer, Percy Palmer. And that's like you're talking about wearing the medals on Gallipoli. That's the 14, that's 1915 star. All Gallipoli um, veterans got that. And it's the war medal, the, cent, the silver one, and then the gold colored one is the victory medal. So that's what they call a trio. So you got that, and he was killed on Chanak Bear, and he got the, the plaque as well. But what's interesting about uh, Palmer, he is well documented as one of the bomb throwers. Here's his plaque, which, which was sent to the family. And then the family also, I've got it here somewhere, also got the, this, in 1965, when they commemorated 50 years of Gallipoli, uh, um, the family, or the, or the ones that got killed or died, they could apply for the uh, little plaque, what do you call it? Um, Emergent. Emergent medallion. Medallion, yeah. Named on the back, and it's got the donkey on it. So. Yeah, so it's a full, he's got what you call a full set. <coughs> and he was one of the men um, who threw these things back. And obviously, he either got killed um, frame one back, or he got, he got um, shot down. The artillery, of course, the Turkish artillery 
pounded the men on Chanakbeer the whole time, and not just one direction. They, 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 they were firing in from about three directions, one, especially one to the south and one to the north. So from down here and then from up here somewhere, and they, they just could enfilade the, the heights quite easily. And um, um, Malone was probably killed by friendly fire. Um, I think he was killed by a ball to his temple, um, a shrapnel ball, which makes me think straight away it would have been from a howitzer rather than a naval ship. They say it was a naval ship that killed him, but um, naval shells didn't have shrapnel on them. So uh, my guess would have been a New Zealand um, howitzer, with, uh, with just above, most of them were just down here above the, the heights. Uh, Pluggy's Plateau, which is the first uh, flat ground above Anzac Cove, and they were firing onto the Turks. Because you imagine what it was like trying to hit the Turks 50 yards behind. I can remember Malone writing when he was at Quinn's Post, and he'd be sitting there right on the lip, you know, drops into the gully, he'd be sitting right there on the lip, and, you heard, and you'd see them, you'd see the shots coming up from the howitzers from down by the beach, and you said you couldn't hear them because the sound was always behind the shot. But you saw this red glow, the shell was red hot, and it said it would just go right over your head about 12 feet above you, and then to slam into the Turks about 100 metres behind them. So you can imagine something going wrong, the gun moving, temperatures changing, a bit of wind or something, you know air pressure and uh, the shells fell into the New Zealanders. So, any questions? Well, uh, did anybody ask, or you didn't volunteer, what happened to the Maoris that went behind them? I don't, I'm not exactly, I don't want to run the Maori down because they're wonderful fighters. But they, my belief is they moved off behind the Wellingtons in, in, the, in the dark about 4 o'clock in the morning. and. They were last seen going, and they dropped down into a gully. There's gullies on both sides. And they started turning up behind the apex over the next couple of days, and then the gullies in behind, and they got them together again. That was probably the reason why they never, when they were in Europe, they never fought as a unit. As a combat unit, they were always a pioneer unit. I mean, they did glorious, asserting work in, in France and Belgium. But they never fought as a combat unit. Did we, didn't we hear in the last week or so that there were 70 killed? It may not have been deliberately. Yeah. Been, 70 killed. When the, the Maori came ashore, they were used like um, pioneering work, like digging trenches and that sort of thing. And the Maori said they had officers, they said, hey, uh, give us some uh, frontline duty. So they, they gave them sentry duties and what have you, and slightly felt them used to it and they were good. And when they did the uh, August the 6th, the first night of the August offensive, the Maori, they split the Maori group, groups up, a few other Maori, and attached them to like, the, the Wapenana rifles to their Targo infantry. Yeah. When they took um, Bashit's Hill, what have you, the Maori there. And after they took Bashit's Hill, the Maori actually did a haka. And you could hear it, apparently you could hear it right, right across. Like if you hear it everywhere.
That's, that's very true. Yeah, yeah. They, there, there, were were, there were a lot of Maori scattered through the, the front of the infantry units. So, same as is in South Africa. They, they had them in the, because they weren't allowed to send Maori to South Africa during the Boer War. Yeah. So that Maori joined up, um, joined up with the contingents. Yeah, well, yeah, like brown pakias because they're quite sunburned over there anyway. <laughs> and, and would you believe the New Zealand officers? Uh, at, at the level, the officers, they didn't care. I was only too pleased to have them there. And command didn't, didn't know. And they changed the names as well, they anglicised them. So. I had a great uncle, he's doing the same thing. Yeah. He's buried in Hautapu Cemetery. And it, a lot of men got, of the, the, the 800 killed in Chinese Bay, a lot of them were married, um, scattered through the units. Three months ago, the Hamilton Playbox put on at the Riverley Theatre, Morris Chadbolt's play, Once on Chanak Bear. It was very powerful. I don't know if any, many people here saw it, but my daughter and I went. There were 11 men in the cast, no women, and you're right about the shelling. It came from different sides as the time went on. It was I could show that in the, in the play today, yeah. Them coming shells. But look, they had nowhere to go, because they only had little, don't forget, they marched uh, on the night of the 6th from here, and only could carry what they had on their backs, really. Yeah. And they had to go up 800 feet or something like that. No, terrible terrains. No water, it was everything that they had, the food, they had to take themselves. And um, it took us five hours and we had roads. I was the smart one. I didn't do that, I did that. I came down. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, that was bad enough. One thing I was going to say, Richard, and it's worth just picking up on that play, right? In the, in the version we saw at Rotorua on Saturday, what was really cool is it had a lot of Malone, well, I think it's called Connolly or something, they changed his name because there's a bit of there's embarrassment or something going on there, right? Listening to his granddaughter. But he was looking out to the distance because, you know, Sukla Bay, it's a beautiful view of Sukla Bay, which is not far down there, which yeah. is 20 odd thousand Englishmen. Sort of up here, so. 20, 20 odd thousand British soldiers. Not just Englishmen, lots of Irishmen. Uh, probably not as, not as many Scotsmen, but there were a lot of guys just down on the bottom there, right? And they yeah. were there for the whole time. The Kiwis were on the top. Right? They could see them, mate. Yeah, they could actually see them from the distance. The buses all warmed up, right? And it's like, you couldn't shout, it is a, it is a, a fair way, but it's, you know, imagine being at the top of the, um, uh, the hill up by the uh, sanatorium, and you're looking down over where the motor, the new motorway is, it sort of feels about, a bit yeah. like that. It's about the distance. Right? Yeah. It's that sort of distance. Mm. Um, so if you can imagine, you just everything's coming down, and there's it's like about five miles. British soldiers sitting there. It was just scary. And you can't but, imagine what it was like, right? Would you believe the commanding? I'm, I'm sorry, Colin. I'm running the bombs out here, but the commanding officer of the of the Suvla Bay landing was a guy called Stockford. I mean, perfect name, eh? <laughs> and he, he landed all his troops on, on, on the beach. No, no one got killed. It was, you know, it was completely 
Um, there were no Turks there at all. And what he did first, he made the men all sit down and they had a cup of tea. And some went swimming. And he, he, he didn't know that he had to take the hills. He didn't know. I mean, crazy. And Hamilton, apparently, on the ship, he was just going crazy. He couldn't believe it. Because the idea was that he was going to come down, come around the back here behind Chanuk Bear and just make it easier for the Kiwis so that when the Kiwis <coughs> relieved the parameter or the perimeter at the back of Anzac, then they, when they all came, then they would be there to join them. So you come across, you know, and, and do the same plan that they were meant to do on the 25th of April. Can I just ask you, Greg, there was a lot of Indian so soldiers at Gurkhas. Philippine too? It was a truly allied force, yeah. Indians. Gurkhas, French, a yeah, huge amount, number of French. Yeah. Yeah, that, more French than Australians and New Zealanders. Mm -hmm. uh, Japanese. Can, uh, Japanese you found them? Yeah, no. It was a few small groups, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the Indians, uh, yes, they had fighting troops, and they didn't actually engage in that duty until the August Offensive or afterwards. And the ships. And the warships. Yeah. Um, so if anybody's got an iPad, I'd seriously recommend if you haven't already got them, I'll double away an application. I've got it on the machine, but you download it. It's an amazing one. It gives a real good background. Yeah. That's, that's my workbook, so that's why it's so tatty. I put that out in 2005, um, bloody bluffly, and then this is the only one I've got. That's my new book that's coming out, Heroes of Gallipoli. So I'm really upset about the fact that the Australians got all the decorations and New Zealand only got one Victoria Cross. Yeah. And I'm not taking anything away from Bassett, but he was an engineer. What about all the combat soldiers? They got nothing. The Brits got 29 Victoria Crosses on Gallipoli. New Zealand gets one. So I'm sure that the, the Australians laugh at us. There's, there's, there's an interesting story, I don't know if that might want to comment on that one, where uh, for all of the, all of the um, gravestones for the Brits and the Aussies, most of them personalised, there's, there's a little saying on each of them. And apparently the New Zealanders made a call that because there were so few Kiwis found, because of bits and pieces all over the place, right? They made a decision not to actually uh, personalise those. They were just representative memorials and monuments. Of it. And then that policy stayed for years after, you know, it was Prime Minister and Minister of Defence yeah. making that call on it. So, you know, the New Zealand ones are very simple. You know, it's just basically your name. Uh, if you're lucky, it's got your date on it. That's about it. Um, and it's quite different, you know, because it's very moving seeing the Australian and the English ones. But then I suppose they're. They're represented as well, but you know, you sort of get a sense of that one individual. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That story is it's, it's quite amazing to see yeah. that one. Yeah, the other thing about um, Colonel Malone is just being the first biography of Colonel Malone. Yes, yes. Right. There was a book put out, what, 10 years ago on Malone, wasn't there? Saying, the Letters of Malone. There is a biography of Colonel Malone. It's just come out. It's very, very Yes, ma'am. Was it particularly difficult to get the bomb 
It doesn't actually belong to me. I, I borrowed it for the occasion. And we were all told that we were not allowed to pick up bone, bullets, nothing. I bought some samples of dirt. I've got some little bits of. I'm doing a little scene of chunk bear, five uh, five kiwis battling at that. And I've got a little little vial of dirt that I, I scraped out of the game as a drain of a couple of chunk bear and a bit of beach sand and stuff. You know, sort of. Yeah, yeah, it is a cemetery, right? It is a graveyard. I'll tell you something else too. I was there in 2011. Uh, four of us went over, and uh, we, when we were at Anzac Cove, we, we had a guy who um, was all cut. He was a lovely guy, and we just yeah, sure. okay, and he's doing. So we stripped off and had a swim in Anzac Cove. You should have seen their faces. What are they doing? You know. What are they? That was great because we went out into the water and you look back at at um, Anzac Cove was was a great um, great sight and I took one took a camera out as well so. To begin with, I don't think they were totally hopeless. I mean, I'd like to exaggerate these things just for a good story. Um, but I think that it was the problem came from centuries before, uh, where um, British officers were actually gentry, and they basically bought their commissions. And uh, having a soldier come up through the ranks, oh no! Uh, and the New Zealanders in 1911, no, we started our volunteer um, scheme in New Zealand. The officers, we had British loan officers out training us and what have you, but our own officers were coming up through the ranks. They started off as corporals and sergeants and what have you, and second lieutenant, lieutenant, etc. And by the time they got to Gallipoli, they were um, like captains, majors, and what have you. And, and they were, as a rule, very good soldiers. And they they knew how to handle the men. They understood the hardships. And, and the limitations of soldiers, whereas the Brits, as a rule, didn't. The Brits were built, were brought up to be like that, to stay behind and have a very good dinner and a very good liqueur, and send their other subalterns out to fight. And I read lots of books, but that's a fact, really. But I wouldn't want to take anything away from the Tommy soldier. No. I mean, they were amazing soldiers, you know, in France and Belgium and North Africa in the Second World War. Uh, they were amazing soldiers. It's the officers I'm talking about. Oh, the okay. Yeah. <laughs> of course, the weaponry had changed significantly too uh, at that time. Uh, people weren't used to weapons that could, uh, you know, rapid fire and great accuracy and um, just but, yeah. the weight of weaponry, really. The weight Machine of artillery guns. in the First World War was just an enormous. Um, and things like mortars too. Take no. We had mortars on Gallipoli, just a few. We had Japanese mortar. Somebody's talking about Japan before. Japanese mortar at Quinn's Post and was a little. And they had special bombs imported from Japan, and they could lob a shell, of, you know, a little bomb. They could lob it, say, even like 20 yards back to 100 yards, and it was just wonderful. Of course, they they couldn't sustain the ammunition. That was the problem. Which which brings me to another little point. Um, if, what, hap what would you think would happen if they took Chanak there and held on to it? Do you think, it would, do you think they'd hold on to it? No, no water. No water? And food? No, and, 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 and
and very exposed to the Turkish artillery. And if, if, they, if they couldn't have all the men up there, they could have as an observation post, right? And they could direct artillery fire to the howitzers down by the beach and, and the ships. But the ships and the howitzers, the longest barrage they had on Gallipoli was 30 minutes. They ran out of ammo. Because they had to come all the way from England. And they didn't have like supply ships and what have you like the Americans have got. Um, now, you know, <laughs> all these ships. But uh, they just couldn't, when they had the softening up barrage of Chani Bear, it was, they were proud to say that was the biggest barrage ever in, in, um, the, in the world before an attack was the one on Chani Bear. But it, it, didn't, it didn't kill one Turk, apparently. Not one. The thing is that, that by the time they got to Yeah, yeah, especially just after the August offensive, but there was a huge wave, wasn't there, of um, men um, reporting sick. And a whole lot of them moved off before then, and then shipped them out. And the, and the Mahino um, arrived um, at Hill 60, so about the 21st of August. Two weeks later, there was another battle um, at, at Hill 60, which is about here somewhere. And that was, I mean, I don't know when we talk about Hill 60 there. Yeah, the Hill 60, that, that was the most moving place. You know, so I was at Hill 60 two days later after the terrorists had sort of moved on and there's nobody else there, just me and my son. And, it was, you know, it, birds were singing and uh, bees were buzzing around. It was a beautiful day in Rosemary. I think there's a, there's all over the places. Yeah, and wheat fields and right? sunflowers. Yeah, yeah it's yeah. a beautiful place. And, uh, you know, there's loads of people represented there, but there's only a very few on the memorial, but it's a hell of a place, right? Well, Hill, Hill 60, no one knows what happened. Even today, they still don't know why they attacked Hill 60, you know. It was this very low hill on the line, and they reckon, somebody, some experts reckon because it had Suva Bay further up here, which was another beachhead, right, and they had the, the enlarged um, Anzac sector after the August offensive they had a lot more land and they had dispatch riders on horses galloping down the beach between the two um, two sectors and uh, the Turks used to fire on them because Hill 60 was the closest to the beach and used to fire them so they decided in their wisdom that to protect the horses protect the men on the horses and the dispatchers that they better take the hill and how many men did it cost New Zealand? Hundreds, hundreds of all mounted rifles, every one of them, just about. How long did the fighting last on that peninsula? When was everybody out? On the 20, 20th of December. Yeah, so December and a few left, and Hellas was in January, but by that stage, you know, it, it had all quiet down because it was the middle of winter. And interesting, enough, you know, I'd, I'd suggest that the fact we got off Gallipoli with nothing happening, and it's like nobody knew we'd gone, it was like the best. Best retreat in history, so they say. Yeah, it, things don't add up. You've got to get a sense that the Turks probably did us go off that one. Because they seem to be that sort of person. Yeah. Um, they seem to be those sorts of people. The Turks, do, you know, they lost 60-odd thousand. So considerably more than, you know, 
the Hill 60 was interesting in that they had to run, the guys had to sprint around 500 metres. They weren't allowed to stop to fire because they, they said there would be easier targets. Can you imagine running 500 metres with downhill people shooting at you? Well, the, the same thing happened at, at um, Daisy Patch on the 8th of May, no, way down here, with the New, New Zealanders. They couldn't, the Brits couldn't do it, so they asked the Anzacs to go down. Before Carifia, they had to attack on the 8th. You might have heard the battle of the Daisy Patch. We lost 300 New Zealanders or something, something terrible. And uh, they, had, they had to attack, they had to get to a certain objective, which was a trench, with some, had some British guys in it. They had to attack it in the morning, in sunlight, while the Turks on the, the foothills in front of Carifia fired on them. And they lost all their men just trying to get to the trench that was already occupied by the Brits. And, and Malone said, if we, if, we tacked, if we tacked before daylight, we, we could have got all our men up there, not one casualty. I realise all the orders were napped, but once, once they actually got into the field, was, could they communicate to that field radio? Right? not in those days, or how did they communicate? They had telephones. There's a question over here. Oh, stupid thing about it, they attacked it twice on the 21st and the 27th or something. Um, they still didn't take a Turkish trench line along the top, because the Turks had trenches all the way down the front, and because it, it took all our might and all our men to take those trenches and, and replace them with New Zealanders, the Turks, you know, and of course they, they ran out of momentum. They couldn't take the, the trench on top of the hill. They could never take it. Cambridge Golf Course has more terrain than Hill 60. To give you a sense of how, you know, that gives us the, the, the hills around the outside of Cambridge Golf Course are higher than Hill 60. Yeah, the hills it's, probably, it's, it's the ponds again. See, you go to England and they say, oh, that's, that's a mountain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the hill on the way to Pomeroy is bigger. You've got no idea. But yeah. you know, the hill's just a gentle. Like that, and you could drive right past it. No one told you. But look, one more thing. Yeah, no. no. The, the night of the sixth was the only. This is interesting. This was the New Zealanders taking all those positions, taking all these positions around here, and, and assembling on rated engine spur. That was the only victory that the Allies had on Gallipoli the whole campaign. There were no other victories. Not even the Australians had a victory. And the biggest victory, if you want to call it a victory, was the evacuation. We didn't lose one man. So um, what should have happened, they should have evacuated on the 25th of April. Should Birdwood, in his wisdom, sent a message. You might have saw that program on TV. To Hamilton, they said, let's get out of here. 
And Hamilton said no, dig, dig, dig. That was his message. They should have got out of there and, and counted their, their losses and, and went somewhere else. But you know, it just prolonged from there. They had to get out finally because of the cold. Yes. And food. Well, they were scared that it wasn't so much the cold, it was the fact that they couldn't supply them yeah, because of the right. storms and the wharfs getting, the wharves getting smashed and the storms and the boats getting smashed, bringing the supplies in. They couldn't supply an army. It was a disaster. Yeah. The whole campaign was. Absolutely you haven't mentioned. You haven't mentioned Churchill yet because well, Churchill started. This is. I reckon this is a real fallacy. Churchill had the idea of taking Constantinople, yeah. but it wasn't his idea to attack Lipley. It was Kitchener, and it was the war cabinet, the British war cabinet, and really, um, Churchill was. was a scapegoat in the whole thing. He just got he got all the criticism when it shipped. I mean, kitchen. The best thing happened to kitchen, didn't it? And he got he went down on the ship in 1916. I mean, how many men did he kill? In his wisdom, he, he did it in South Africa. He did the same thing in South Africa. He brought in concentration camps for the civilians in South Africa. I mean, he was a nasty man. So it was good to get rid of Kitchener. <laughs> I'm aware that, that a couple of you wanted to get away. I don't want to close down the whole evening by any, any means. We've, we've got a cup of tea on, on the go there. And there's, uh, there's some material that Richard has here. And Michael's got, Michael and Sue have got some uh, bits there that uh, they're keen to show. Um, the idea of tonight was because of the uh, the anniversary, the 100th anniversary of Chanuk Bear, which was last Saturday. And just to remember, I think, from the perspective of the Cambridge Historical Society, to remember our people that, that, um, that died 100 years ago. We've, we've got our um, photo montage there of our Cambridge boys that are, they're the photos of the, the boys that are on the cenotaph outside the town hall. And there was, um, I think, uh, four? Four. Four. And we've also got some local lads that are actually not on the cenotaph, but for one reason or another, another five or six. So uh, please don't go away. We're keen to have a, uh, a bit of a chat, an informal chat, and, uh, and, and have a look at the material here. And I wonder just perhaps, um, just remembering Chunuk Bear, I wonder whether we should just stand and just have a moment's silence for, for those people that, w that were lost. Thank you. And again, I'd just like to thank Sue, Michael and Richard for coming along tonight and doing what they've done. It's been um, absolutely um, riveting to, to hear about um, what happened at Gallipoli and um, we all know it was a bit of a disaster, but to get some inside information from people who've been there or studied the campaign as, uh, as Richard has, has been um, has been great for us tonight. Uh, thank you very much. Yep. And as we said, there's a cup of tea if you want to stay for one and have a chat. And if you're keen on joining our society, we've got some membership forms here. Please pick one up and take it with you.
Thank you. Are you the gentleman that wrote the book about the Catherine of the Gumbo? Yes. Yeah. I, I recognise that. I bought it. Oh, yes. Yeah, I've got yeah. a lot of names here. Right, right. That's a particularly valuable book. Yes. Uh, I thought I recognised that. Yeah, I you. I to ask a question about Silver Bay and I was the